Hi, everybody, and welcome to Congress Two Beers In. My name is Laura Blessing, and I'm really delighted to have David Carroll here as our guest uh, for this episode. David Carroll is an associate professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, his first book was Party Position Change in American Politics. He's one of the co-authors of the widely discussed book, The Party Decides, uh, on presidential nominations. And he's most recently looked at polarization on environmental issues in his 2019 volume, Red, Green, and Blue. He studies parties, interest groups, institutions, and elite opinion. And we are so delighted to have him here with us today uh, to talk a little bit about Veep Stakes. Uh, so a warm welcome to David Carroll, and also here with me is my colleague, Josh Huter. Yep. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Laura and Josh. So it is, uh, you know, about 1.30 in the afternoon, so we're, I'm not having two beers, uh, but I've got a little mocktail action going on, uh, a little bit of tonic water, water in there. I still need my anti-malarial medicine. Um, so it's all good, but uh, I, I'm going to start with like a 30,000 foot question here. How should how should we look at the VP stakes? What is the most important uh, impact of VP choice? There are so many different ways to think about this. Okay, I think often people uh, discuss whether the VP selection is going to determine the outcome of the presidential election. And the answer to that is that it's unlikely to, but I think that's not the right way to look at it. Uh, it's still a very important choice uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first thing is uh, it, it may uh, determine who who becomes president of the United States before too long. There are more than a few vice presidents have succeeded to the office. And we all know that Joe Biden, uh, were he to be elected, would be uh, by far the oldest man uh, beginning a term as president. Um, he would be about the same age that Ronald Reagan was when he left office after two terms at the beginning of his term. And um, so also, um, even if Biden uh, is, uh, in, remains healthy and serves out his term, it seems unlikely that in his 80s, he would seek a second term. Uh, and in that scenario, uh, his vice president would be the uh, logical successor. Um, Biden had a very long career in the Senate, but really the only reason that he's where he is today is because uh, Obama picked him as a running mate in 2008, uh, and then he was a successful vice president. Uh, so the, there are, um, I think the stakes are higher than usual in uh, regarding the vice presidential pick, not because it's likely to drive the outcome this fall, but because of um, Biden's age. And he, he may not serve his whole term. Hopefully he would, but then he'd be unlikely to serve a second term. And now we're talking about the, the likely candidate um, in 2024. So uh, those are important stakes for a party. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're saying this is just, this is, might be an unusual presidential election, I think is, is what I'm hearing. Um, so we've got, uh, you know, in terms of thinking about the coalitional angle of this, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to say that uh, the big focus on whether or not this is going to be helpful for an election 
uh, is probably overplayed in the press and you know particularly people looking at who've looked at uh, VP home state advantage have found that it's pretty conditional and pretty rare. Um, I mean, what what kind of choices are we looking at in terms of what this means, you know, for party coalitions? Yeah, the Democratic Party um, is, and really always has been, the more diverse of the two parties. Uh, although there's of course disagreements within uh, both major parties, but the Democratic Party uh, has long been the most, uh, the more diverse of the two, and um, a vice presidential pick. Uh, is going to be chosen with an eye towards uh, broad acceptability within the party. You know, the, 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 first, uh, the first imperative is that the picture to do no harm, politically speaking. Uh, that's not what the nominee will say. The nominee will say, I picked the person who's best qualified to step in if necessary and who is most in sync with my vision and priorities. But uh, realistically, from a political standpoint, the first concern is somebody who um, does not uh, make waves and does not make trouble. I mean, it's especially true probably for somebody like Biden right now, who at the moment at least is in a very strong position. Um, you know, we've seen cases where nominees made unorthodox picks, uh, but in those cases were nominees who were trailing and felt the need to make what they call the, the Hail Mary pass. So uh, John McCain chose Sarah Palin, which didn't work out so well. Um, and, but while people can say that was a mistake, he, you know, he, he felt he needed to do something to shake things up, which he certainly did. Uh, and the only other time a woman was chosen before was, of course, uh, Geraldine Ferraro a generation earlier. And that's another case in which the the nominee, uh, in that case, Walter Mondale, um, was in a weak position and also felt that he needed to do something uh, dramatic. Biden, uh, Biden has said he's going to pick a woman, which is uh, still historic because we've yet to have a woman vice president, but it's less, these days, that's you know less surprising. And he's not, he's in a much stronger position than McCain was or than Mondale was. And so I think he will want to go with someone who is safe. And part of safe is being, uh, you know, no surprises in terms of their background, but also someone who is going to be broadly greeted with, um, without controversy within the party, who is going to be broadly acceptable uh, within the party. Uh, and some fit that description, you know, better than others. Yeah, so we uh, we actually record. We tried uh, to re to record this a couple of weeks ago, and then the protest happened, and you were kind enough to come back and, and update this a little bit for us. But I was really struck by a particular metaphor that you used for one of the candidates in terms of finding broad acceptability, and I thought I'd just uh, yeah. kind of give you that softball again uh, to use a historical parallel that I, I found compelling. Well, thank you. I'm happy to happy to. Uh, repeat myself, uh, you know, at a certain point in a career, you get into the greatest hits phase. And <laughs> you just have to go with that and accept that. And maybe it's happening to me a little early, but that's all right. Um, so, um, yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, we mentioned that, uh, but because of Biden's advanced age, the stakes in vice presidential selection are 
higher than usual. And uh, the other case that comes to mind like that is the 1944 uh, uh, election when FDR ran for his fourth and what uh, turned out to be his final term. In that case, um, uh, he was nowhere near as old as Biden is now, but he was a sick man. Uh, people in and people in the Democratic Party elite knew that. The public did not really know that. They knew he had polio, but they didn't know that he was weakening us. And a lot of people in the Democratic Party establishment did know that. They didn't know, and he didn't know, and no one knew that he would die so soon in, in what became his fourth term. But they knew he was maybe not that it would be his last term, that he would not necessarily make it through that term. So the stakes were higher and the incumbent vice president, Henry Wallace, uh, was very uh, much on the progressive left. And uh, he was anathema to large factions within the Democratic Party uh, that are no longer very relevant. But at that time, uh, he was unpopular with white southerners and he was unpopular in the north with uh, machine big city machine bosses he was not their kind of guy uh, and they had been willing to overlook that in 1940 when it seemed like Roosevelt might just go on forever and I think they also didn't have as good a sense of Wallace at that point um, but by 1944 they were not willing to put up with Wallace uh, especially with FDR uh, in his more enfeebled position so there was uh, a move to dump him from the ticket and the eventual uh, choice, as everyone knows, is it was Harry Truman. Uh, and Harry Truman uh, was not chosen because he was a great orator. He wasn't chosen because he was uh, a leading senator or a household name or anything like that. But he was chosen um, because he was broadly acceptable to all the factions within the party. Um, he was from Missouri, a border state. His grandfathers had fought for the Confederacy. So he had a rapport with Southern senators. At the same time, he had voted uh, for, um, he had voted for uh, New Deal policies. He had even supported uh, some uh, pro, early pro-civil rights efforts. Uh, he, uh, was acceptable to labor unions. He was the product of a machine, a political machine in uh, Jackson County, Missouri, the Kansas City, the infamous Pendergast uh, machine. So he was acceptable to machine politicians, but he personally uh, was known to uh, be incorruptible. Uh, so there wasn't that kind of risk either. Um, so he was, uh, broadly acceptable to all elements of the Democratic Party. And that's what um, uh, led to his selection uh, as vice president in a kind of uh, messy process with some intrigue. Roosevelt was not there. He was kind of probably pulling the strings from a distance. Um, and it mattered because uh, only a few months after uh, becoming vice president, of course, he succeeded to the office. Um, and uh, so the Democratic Party is very different today. Um, you know, uh, political machines of that sort really no longer exist. Uh, and white Southerners are no longer an important faction within the Democratic Party. Um, so the actors, the factions are different today, but I think the imperatives that led to Truman's selection are still very much there. Uh, so 
So based on some of the dynamics that we have going on now and what you see in the Democratic Party currently, and especially in the wake of the protests, where do you think that, you know, the sort of like, if you were, where's the triangulation of the Democratic coalition uh, going to fit around? Which which people are sort of in and which are out? How, how have the dynamics changed within the last two uh, weeks, given all of the uh, kind of social unrest? Well, I think um, the protests uh, have had uh, an impact that, you know, some of what I said, I stand by what I said in the, in the uh, you know, the lost tapes, but um, now it's sort of been overtaken by events. So when we had this discussion, I said that I thought, one person who was discussed was Amy Klobuchar, but that she was not the most broadly appealing within the party, that Biden could probably select her and it wouldn't be necessarily a huge revolt, but there would be a lot of unhappiness in the more progressive quarters of the party. Uh, I th and, and so I didn't think it was likely that she would be picked. And now with what we learned about, you know, her more about her record as prosecutor in Minnesota um, and not charging uh, not charging uh, police, uh, you know, the, the eventual result and the death of George Floyd. Uh, I think most people agree she's really out of contention. Uh, but even before I didn't, as I said, I thought she was an unlikely pick because going back to the Truman example, she was not somebody who was the, uh, all elements of the party would be at least would be reasonably happy with. Um, another name that's mentioned a lot um, is Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, uh, I think she's sort of the, the bookend with Klobuchar, where she definitely is uh, popular in some sec sections of the party. Uh, demographically, they had maybe somewhat a similar appeal to um, highly educated white voters, uh, but their ideological positioning is different. Uh, and she's seen, you know, much more, presents herself much more as a strong progressive. Uh, I, I still think, although they're waning maybe, I still think that there are elements of the Democratic Party who wouldn't be as comfortable with her um, for that reason, probably. Um, there are other factors. There's, this is a multi-dimensional choice and she's 70 and given Biden's age, you know, two separate generians is maybe not an ideal ticket, even though she's younger than him and uh, actuarially a, a better bet than him down the road, women women live longer. But so I think that, you know, I, I was saying that I thought Klobuchar was unlikely. I also thought Warren was unlikely for other reasons, right? Um, I thought, you know, Holmes, um, so the person who I was talking about, who is really also meant sort of, I think, consistent with the conventional wisdom, so I'm not breaking ground here, is Kamala Harris, who is, in a sense, the, the Harry Truman of the situation. As, as different as she is stylistically and demographically from Harry Truman, it's hard to imagine two people, uh, two Democratic senators who are more different. But uh, you, if you look at the way she is positioned in the party, uh, she, uh, her ideological positioning uh, is a little more ambiguous than Klobuchar's or than Warren's. Uh, maybe people might say that she's less consistent than either of them, but even so, uh, she she's probably more acceptable to progressives than Klobuchar was, or some really clearly branded moderate would be. Uh, at the same time, I think some of the people who would be put off by Warren would not be put off by her. Um, she, 
unlike some people who are mentioned, for example, a big internet favorite is Stacey Abrams. Um, she has more experience in high, she has experience in high office. At the same time, she is substantially younger than Biden. Uh, so, um, you know, we mentioned the protests, so there's discussion about uh, that. Um, so probably there's more interest in a black running mate than before. So that's another box that she checks. Uh, and then uh, how, what kind of, of running mate vis-a-vis uh, -vis these protests? Uh, so another name that's mentioned, you know, is uh, Congresswoman uh, Val Demings from Florida. Uh, well, during the primary, the, the Bernie bros attacked uh, uh, Kamala Harris on the web. They called her Kamala as, as a cop because she had been the district attorney in San Francisco and the attorney general. Well, Congresswoman Demings actually was the police chief of Orlando. So, um, and that has to be, you know, so, so Biden would have to think about that. How would that, how would that be received in, you know, in this moment? Um, so that's another way in which Harris is sort of in the middle Right, because she has a law enforcement background, but she wasn't actually uh, a police, you know, wasn't actually uh, a, a police chief. Um, so she, you know, Biden has options. Um, it does not have to be her, but I think that from a party standpoint, I think she is a, uh, a very logical choice uh, because she is broadly acceptable. Uh, like Truman, she's known to many people in the party. He had been a senator for longer, but she uh, was you know, a statewide office holder in the largest state. She did run for president. It wasn't, obviously her presidential campaign did not go well, but a couple things. Some people say she was vetted. She was under the spotlight for a while. And the other thing is, if you look at the endorsements that she got, uh, she got, I believe, second most after Biden, which spoke to her broad acceptability to different elements within the Democratic Party. A lot of her support was from, of course, from California, and then uh, from out of California, much of it was, uh, many of her endorsers were African-American, but she wasn't the only African-American candidate in the race. Cory Booker, who got to the Senate before her, was there, and the fact that more, you know, she was more successful at winning support from um, African-American political elites than he was, um, I think it's telling. So I think uh, predictions, they always say predictions are hazardous, especially about the future. But um, I, I think there's a good case for her politically, and um, I would not be uh, surprised if, if, it's for, if it's her, um, because I really think um, issues change, party coalitions change, but kind of basic imperatives, given the institutions that we have, don't change much. And uh, she's not everyone's first choice, but that's not what's necessarily called for in this position. Uh, and if it's not her, uh, I think it will be someone else who can, uh, for whom a good case can be made in that respect also, that they're broadly acceptable to different uh, elements of the party. I would like to ask you kind of like a, oh, go ahead, like a, kind of like a broad sort of like party question, like given like everything that's going on and this like, it does seem kind of like an inflection point within at least certainly democratic politics, right? Yeah. Um, how, how do you think the, the Democratic Party is going to be affected by um, these protests and the movement that had been sparked um, after uh, George Floyd's death? Do you see it evolving in any new ways? I mean, we kind of have a, a different scenario going on with like the president currently is not doing very well in any of the polls. Like, 
Joe Biden's actually expanding his lead with like older um, white Americans. And so you have the situation where you got a lot of protest movement maybe changing the party and how it's going to address like police reform, for example. And then on the other side of the ticket, you have, you know, expanding the base, or at least attempting to expand the base. Yeah, I think it's interesting. A lot of people were saying, and some were worried that, you know, this was going to be 1968 all over again, in that um, the Democrats were hurt by, uh, in many analyses, by uh, rioting and disorder in 1968. And Nixon, the Republican nominee, was able to run as the law and order candidate. Um, But that situation was different in a number of uh, important ways. Uh, other people have noted that um, Nixon wasn't the incumbent, so he was able to capitalize on disorder and disarray in a way that uh, it's harder for Trump to do. Um, the, the other thing is the protests and, and, and uh, disorder and riots in 1968 uh, accepted the Democratic Convention uh, where protesters were largely white and anti-war, the anti-war movement was largely white. Um, this was much more uh, racial, that was much more racially polarized. Um, you know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, it wasn't white people um, uh, protesting and rioting. And uh, what we see in this situation is the crowds are far more diverse than they were uh, 50 years ago. Uh, and that reflects, I think, changes that have already happened in the Democratic Party. Um, the white, working class, socially conservative and often racist uh, element of the Democratic base that was uh, uh, very large in 1968 and, and where Nixon and George Wallace could make inroads um, it is really not there anymore to, in, in anything like the same numbers. Uh, the Democratic Party is increasingly party of uh, uh, racial minorities and um, highly educated whites who are more socially liberal and more liberal on, on uh, questions of race. Uh, so I think it is possible that um, if, you know, the, the, the most objectionable parts of the, 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 the protest, uh, you know, of the reaction to the uh, killing of, of George Floyd, this, the, the, the looting um, and, and destruction really prolonged, I think that could be a problem for Democrats. But what's, what we've seen is we've seen the response in the streets has been uh, mostly nonviolent uh, and much more racially diverse than it was 50 years ago. So as I say, I think that reflects changes that have already happened in the Democratic Party. And for that re- partially for that reason, uh, and because Trump can't capitalize on disorder, given that he's already in office, it has actually not been a problem so far for Biden. Uh, and uh, I think as you said, uh, his, his poll numbers actually have improved uh, in recent weeks, weeks, which not everyone would have predicted. Yeah, I think that the polling changes are remarkable. I mean, both uh, Biden's uh, recent improvement in the polls is unusual for, you know, a polling that's been uh, so steady um, as just a general single characteristic throughout the Trump presidency. Um, but, you know, particularly the polling changes on uh, questions of police brutality and questions of racial justice, these, these changes are 
gigantic in a very short period of time. I don't think we need to go back 50 years. We can go back two or four years. Um, you have twice as many whites saying that, you know, blacks are more likely to be victims of police brutality than they did four years ago. I mean, this is uh, really a fascinating shift for, uh, you know, what the party is going to think that it stands for, uh, what it's going to prioritize in terms of different policy, um, and, you know, uh, what all of this means for how they think about themselves uh, during this time. Um, you know, it's, uh, and it's, it's, doesn't seem like something that can be used as a wedge issue or used against, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, looking at looting or, you know, used against protesters in a way that we've kind of seen before, which I think is fascinating. Um, I mean, do you see, uh, you know, between the, the pandemic and the protests, do you see kind of a rejiggering of, uh, you know, different issues, I mean, that are uh, of primary concern, um, whether or not that has any impact for deep stakes or not, um, you know, because we've we focused on whether it matters for the election. We focused on whether it matters for party coalition. I mean, like, how does how should we think about like policy issues? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think the issue of uh, police misconduct and community relations was already present in the Obama administration. You know, Black Lives Matter em emerged when he was president, it was the killing of Trayvon Martin and the, the Ferguson protests and other events. And Obama appointed a commission. And, and it, so this issue uh, is not new. Of course, it's, it's not new at all, uh, as, as many historians have noted, but, but it's not even new in, in terms of our recent political past. But I think, of course, um, it's more salient now. One thing to always, uh, always remember, of course, is that, you know, this is still June and there's time for other things to happen. You know, uh, the, uh, you know, a few months ago, there were still people who thought uh, Bernie Sanders would be the nominee and Trump would be able to run on um, the good economy. So we're in, you know, we're in a very different world. Uh, and there's certainly time for for things to change between now and then uh, between now and november 3rd i don't think obviously the, uh, the the good economy that was still there in january is not going to be back um covid19 unfortunately it's, it seems will still be with us in one form or another for some time but there's time for something new you know some, some new crisis it's hard to imagine something bigger but um Oh, something, something could, something could emerge. Something else could emerge in the news. One thing I would say, though, is that um, Biden's position vis-a-vis uh, -vis Trump has been strong for a long time. Uh, it's true his poll numbers have improved recently, and that's notable. But he was leading Trump in head-to-head -head polls uh, before the protest movement, before the pandemic. Uh, and, and I think that's really important to mention because there will, uh, there will be a natural tendency if Trump loses for people to say, wow, when things go badly, the president loses. But he was, he was trailing Biden and to, uh, uh, by a smaller margin, he was also trailing Bernie Sanders, uh, in most polls before any of this happened. Now, of course, those are polls 
It might have been that things would have changed. There might have been a rally to Trump. But our baseline should be that Trump was losing before any of this happened. Uh, and I think if we want to talk about party coalitions uh, here, it's notable that Trump won in a very narrow, flukish way in 2016. And he, did, he has done really nothing in the last three and a half years to expand his appeal. Uh, to a remarkable extent, he has concentrated on the Republican base uh, and the elements in it that, uh, you know, have been important for a while. The social, social religious conservatives, evangelicals, the NRA, uh, he small gestures that other presidents of both parties have made. So, for example, every president since... Uh, uh, Going back, I think, uh, to the Carter, I think going back to Jimmy Carter uh, has included somebody from the other party in his cabinet. Um, that's certainly true of Obama uh, uh, and George W. Bush and uh, Bill Clinton, recent presidents in both parties. And this is a sort of, it's a tokenistic gesture and it doesn't have a lot of policy uh, importance, but it's, it's one signal. Um, and, you know, and Trump, you know, very briefly seems to escape the clutches of uh, party coalition components only to very quickly go back in the fold. So after the horrible uh, shooting in Florida, the school shooting, he said, I'm not afraid of the NRA. And then apparently he took a meeting with Wayne LaPierre and um, then he really wasn't interested in doing that much. Uh, even though poll numbers suggested it would be popular to do that. Uh, so that's important because so the, the Republican Party uh, is dependent on demographics that are waning. It's as America becomes more diverse, it remains an overwhelmingly white party. Its support had been uh, concentrated in um, older age cohorts. Uh, nonetheless, and of course, Trump didn't win the popular vote, um, despite all the problems that Hillary Clinton had. He, he won very narrowly um, because his vote was more efficiently distributed uh, uh, enabled him to get an electoral college majority. Some presidents seeing that would have tried to, it, it's hard uh, in his defense, you could say in a polarized time, it's hard to win over people from the other side. And that's true. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, we mentioned Nixon, uh, mentioned, you know, uh, winning in 68 on law and order. So he won in part because of divisions in what was then the much larger party, the Democratic Party. But then when he was in office, he recognized that. He recognized that he had won narrowly with a minority of the vote. He won a plurality of the popular vote, but far from 50%, and it was a three-way race. So he did a lot of things to try and broaden his appeal. Um, you know, he created the EPA, OSHA, expanded Social Security. Uh, he ended the draft and really wound down the Vietnam War. He went to China. So his first term was uh, quite successful. Uh, you know, and and uh, it's not only because of the Democrats' problems with the, you know, and, and George McGovern's weakness that Nixon you know, was reelected. Uh, Trump, who people compare to Nixon in various ways, uh, couldn't be really more different. Um, he has not done anything to broaden his appeal. Um, and I don't think, as I say, I don't think, in fairness, it, the field was as open for him to do that as it was for Nixon. But even within, you know, 
the scope that was available to him, he didn't do it. And I think the result of that, and, and of course his personal conduct in office has been so controversial and off-putting to so many. So the result of that is that Joe Biden uh, was, was beating him before the protests and before the pandemic. So it, it, uh, you're coming to touch a little bit on a question I wanted to ask you about whether or not the, the party is deciding this time around. Yeah, um, well, you know, we published that book uh, in 2008, uh, and it was based on data from 1980 to 2004. And then we had, you know, some messy cases for a few a few cycles, and some good ones and some bad ones. Uh, uh, the, the Romney nomination was pretty consistent with the thesis that party elites, despite a more open a participatory process after the post-1968 reforms that party elites have been able to usually steer the process and uh, secure a nominee uh, who of the kind who would have emerged from the old elite dominated conventions, someone with a track record in the party, someone uh, acceptable to uh, elites, uh, someone who seemed like a safe choice. Romney fit that description. Uh, and of course, Hillary Clinton also did, did, but Donald Trump certainly did not. Uh, Republican elites uh, thought he was their worst nightmare. Um, they didn't think that he could beat Hillary Clinton. Uh, and they also thought that he would be very erratic in office and didn't uh, trust him on policy. Um, for a while, you have to say it worked out better for them than they might have hoped. Um, but in that he did beat Hillary Clinton and that on policy with a few exceptions like trade and, and uh, North Korea, he governed mostly like an Orthodox Republican. Uh, but uh, we wrote a 2016 follow-up article in the journal uh, PS, uh, Political Science and Politics, arguing that changes in media, uh, the uh, rise of partisan media, the rise of social media, the web, um, destabilized the situation. Uh, they led to a, a great increase in small donors, the kind of people who fueled, fueled the Howard Dean campaign and more recently the Bernie Sanders campaign. And uh, while Trump is unique in many ways, uh, these changes actually are reflected very much in the Sanders campaigns, both in 2016 and 2020. The fact that he raised as much money as Hillary Clinton when no one knew who he was practically in the early 2015, that he had uh, uh, come closer to her in the polls by the fall of 2015 before the first debate. This is something that would not have happened in the 70s or 80s. He would have had to break through in Iowa and New Hampshire to get known. The information environment is different. It's more challenging for party elites than it was even in the 90s. But if we look at the result of the 2020 Democratic nomination process, in the end, we have to say the nominee was an entirely conventional one. Uh, and on the one hand, the Democratic elites did not rally to Joe Biden early. I think there was concerns about his age, his, his gaff-prone uh, nature. But when it became clear that no one else who was maybe a potentially younger successor, like Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, was taking off, and there was a risk that Sanders would be the nominee, uh, belatedly, uh, party elites rallied to him. Most prominent example, of course, is Congressman Jim Clyburn, who delivered a crucial endorsement before the South Carolina primary. But after that, many others. 
uh, and, you know, his, some of his rivals, um, uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropped out immediately, endorsed him after Super Tuesday. Bloomberg did the same thing. Um, there was belated coordination, uh, and Biden uh, benefited from that. So um, I, I think uh, the process was somewhat messier. He certainly was not, uh, did not benefit from overwhelming early elite support the way Hillary Clinton did in 2016 or Al Gore did in 2000. But uh, he, not a bad case for the book all in all in the thesis, I think. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's how I view it. Yeah, I think you're right that the most powerful um, uh, you know, uh, manifestation of party strength that we've seen in the cycle has been more anti-Sanders uh, than anything else, um, at least in a more coordinated way. Um, you know, it's, uh, this is a, a, an incredibly fascinating uh, and tumultuous time uh, for our politics, and we're, we're so happy uh, to, to have you on to help us make sense out of all of it. Um, you have uh, you have a, a parting parting thought uh, for us on all this pro process. I'm not sure I can beat the quote, you know, that Kamala Harris is is Truman-esque. That's my favorite yeah. line from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe 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 you should leave him wanting more and go out on a high note. I like it. <laughs> Well, a big thank you to David Carroll for joining us and uh, hope everyone is home and staying safe.